Well, I, uh, I don't know how I look to you this morning, whether I look any different uh, than I have in the past or in recent weeks, but I'm happy to say that in the last three weeks, I have lost uh, about five or seven pounds again. Uh, so I don't know if you can notice, um, they also say the camera adds 10 pounds and there's two cameras pointed at me, so maybe I look like I'm up 13. But um, I, Chris and I just finished the third week um, of our New Year's eight-week challenge, uh, which is really exciting. Some of you have done the eight-week challenge before. Others of you have no idea what it is. So for those of you who have no idea what it is, let me tell you, it's essentially a, a nutritional challenge. It's a dietary challenge. There's a fitness component, but I ignore that like everybody else. Um, it's a fitness component or a, a dietary challenge where you are basically eliminating everything from your diet that you uh, enjoy, and you are emphasizing everything in your diet that is good for you. And the whole point is cleanliness, and is you're eating clean, and you're not putting garbage in your body, and, and you're trying to make a lifestyle transformation in the way that you eat, uh, because that also makes a transformation in how, you, in how healthy you are, and so on. It's about optimizing for health, I guess, would be the way to say it. And I have to tell you, as much as I uh, am enjoying the fact that I'm down some pounds. Uh, this hasn't totally been the easiest. I mean, I guess there's a reason they call it a challenge, right? <laughs> it's not, they don't use that word because they couldn't think of a different one. It's just hard. There's just some things about it that are hard. I don't, for example, I don't leap out of bed in the morning and rush downstairs to brew myself a piping hot pot of uh, water with lemon in the bottom. Like that doesn't, that doesn't, thrill my soul. It just lacks some of the kick, you know, that your morning coffee has. You just, you miss some of the savoring aspect. There's just something about spelt bread that doesn't quite ah, capture what bread is supposed to be skimmed with uh, almond butter, basically. And then for the whole rest of the day, it's pretty well fruit and vegetables, as many vegetables as you can. And, and that's fine. Krista and I have for years now disciplined ourselves to eat as many vegetables as we possibly can. And that's okay. It's just that it's the small things that I miss. I miss, you know, I don't enjoy coming home and pouring myself, you know, flopping down in my chair and pouring myself a nice tall glass of water. Because that's basically the only thing you can drink on this challenge. I, uh, I don't enjoy uh, turning down my mother-in-law's apple crisp, uh, so I didn't. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you, I miss the snacking. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna be frank. Two times a week, I get to count out 26 organic blue corn chips. That's my snack. 26 chips, two times a week. That's a, that's a snack. Four days from now, I can have 26 more chips. I miss nachos and cheese because cheese is totally gone, which is like my kryptonite. Right, totally gone, eliminated from the diet. I just, there are things that make it hard and there's stuff that makes it worth it. Just knowing that I've lost the weight, knowing how much better I feel about myself, knowing how much more energy I have, knowing that I don't feel bloated all the time, knowing that uh, systems function with the, regularity that they're supposed to work. Just my body feels so much better in this mode. And I guess the lesson that I've learned over the last three weeks is really this. Anything that's worth it is hard. 
anything that's worth it is hard. Because this has been hard in some ways. I still can't resist the Smarties in the pantry. But it's been totally, totally, totally worth it. And this is where Jesus ends. This is where he finishes his conversation with the disciples that we've been looking at over the last six weeks of this mission critical series where Jesus has got his disciples together and he's talking to them. This whole series basically emerges, I'll say it this way, it emerges out of this incident in Jesus' life where he is totally overwhelmed by the size and the scope of the human need that he sees around himself all the time. There's people being beaten up and knocked down by life. Living, feeling far from God, feeling like God has abandoned them. People living racked with guilt and, and filled with hopelessness. People living alone and lonely. People living in unhealthy relationships. People looking at the world around them and just feeling like the whole thing is going to hell in a handbasket. And Jesus is so overwhelmed by the scope of this need that he calls his disciples to himself and sends them out on this mission to preach the same message to the world that he himself has been preaching, which is the time for the kingdom of God has come. Essentially, the message is this, that through Jesus, God is breaking into human history and has grabbed the steering wheel of creation and he is steering the whole project called humanity and this world back onto the track of love and joy and hope and peace again. And he sends them out into the world to be agents of God's healing love and to declare this message that the kingdom of God is drawing near. And it's the message, frankly, the message that the, that, uh, the Jews in Jesus' day had been waiting and hoping and praying to hear literally for hundreds of years. So at this point in Jewish history, they're living in the land of Israel, but they're living as prisoners in their own homeland under the, the pressure of occupying foreign invading forces of the Roman legions that now are everywhere in Israel, living under Caesar's law rather than Moses' law. They're living, being taxed into oblivion, into stupid poverty. They're living as slaves in their own land. And all throughout their scriptures, the Old Testament prophets promised that there was going to be a day that would come when God would break into human history in miraculous ways and he would reclaim this world. He would defeat um, Israel's enemies and he would liberate Israel, set them free and establish them as the nation that he always wanted them to be. And then he would come and dwell in their midst. And when he did, it would usher in this era, the Jews would call it, of shalom. In English, we say peace, but peace doesn't even begin to cut it. The word shalom refers to the rest that comes when everything is the way that it's supposed to be. The rest that comes to a life of abundance, the rest that comes in a life of freedom, the rest that comes in a life that's healthy, the rest that comes when you're surrounded by beauty and joy and peace and equality and justice. And love. They were waiting for the day when somebody would come and announce the kingdom of God has drawn near. And hearing that message from Jesus and the disciples and seeing the miraculous ways in which God was breaking into the world through them, the Jews 
We're buzzing with anticipation that the time for shalom, the time for peace had finally come. And then Jesus says this to his disciples in verse 34, chapter 10. He says, don't you suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth? I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to turn, quote, a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Jesus says to his disciples, I want to be perfectly clear about this. I did not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. He says, don't you think that because I've come, don't you think that because we're announcing this message about the kingdom of God, that everything from now on is going to be hunky-dory? In fact, he says, just the opposite. Things are going to get worse before they get better because of me. He quotes, actually, another Old Testament prophet, the prophet of Micah. And in Micah's prophecy about the coming of the kingdom of God, what Micah promises is that prior to the coming of the shalom, the peace of the kingdom, there is going to be an era of turmoil and chaos and conflict and hostility. And Jesus was saying, it is this period that we're living through now. He says, in the most graphic, terrifying example imaginable, he says, it's going to be so bad that even families will be divided against each other because some will believe and others won't. And, they, and those who don't will hate those who do. Friendships will be ripped apart. Relationships will be ruined and destroyed. People will hate each other because of me. He says, this is not the time of peace but the time of chaos and turmoil. People, he says, don't think they're gonna line up to embrace you and embrace me and embrace the message and embrace the healing love of God. They won't. He said, people will hate each other. People will hate you because of me. We talked about this a little bit last week. But we never talked about why that's true. Why it is that the message of Jesus, which is about the healing love of God breaking into the world, why does that message create so much hostility in our world? I think the Apostle Paul in the New Testament gives us two pretty solid reasons why people get angry about the good news about Jesus. He says, number one, there are some people who are just going to be offended by the message of Jesus, who are just going to find it scandalous. They're going to consider you to be judgmental when you talk about sin instead of just encouraging everyone to do whatever they feel is right. They're going to consider you to be intolerant when you invite people to put their faith in Jesus rather than just believing whatever is true for you. They're going to be unsettled by people they'll call holier than thou when in reality those people are just trying to be holy. Paul says some people are going to be offended by the gospel. He says some people are going to be, uh, they're going to consider it foolishness. They're just going to think it's stupid. The idea that God became a man and was born of a virgin, died on a cross, was raised from the, the only human being in human history to be raised from the dead and is still alive 
And that somehow that means that my sin can be forgiven 2,000 years later. That's just stupid. And you have to admit, from an outside perspective, the story does sound remarkable, to say the least. The idea that we would believe in a personal agent of evil at work in the world called the devil, that's just stupid. The idea that we would believe in God himself, given the scientific society that we live in, it's just stupid. There are people who think it's irresponsible that we would want to assist the poor. They'll say that we're just enabling a lifestyle of laziness. There'll be people who say that we're naive for loving enemies, for wanting to forgive and reconcile rather than attack and hate and be bitter and angry and just bomb those who disagree with us. There'll be those who say it's ridiculous to want to live a what can I do for you kind of life in a what's in it for me kind of world. There are reasons why people get angry about the message. But there are bigger reasons than just people's reasons. There are cosmic reasons why there's so much hurt and anger. Actually, what Micah was saying in his prophecy is that the kingdom of God only emerges in the world through suffering and struggle, through pain and hardship. There's a reason why the gospel is surrounded by suffering and struggle and pain and hardship. And the reason is that from the creation of the world and before, God has had an enemy who has been seeking to undermine everything God's been trying to do in his creation. Everywhere that God has been trying to invite people to live in a relationship with him, the enemy has been at work trying to convince people that God is angry and callous and cruel and distant and uncaring and imaginary. Everywhere that God has been trying to paint the picture of a human life, you know, lived in a Godward direction of integrity and character and an outward direction of loving service, the enemy has been at work trying to tempt people to live only for themselves, not God or others. Everywhere that God's been at work trying to create a human family that lives with each other in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, the enemy has been at work, has been at work. sowing animosity, and sorrow, and conflict, and discord, and intolerance, and greed, and lust, and injustice, and oppression. Everywhere that God has imagined humanity compassionately stewarding creation, respectfully uh, utilizing its resources to maximize its beauty and its hospitality to the human family. The enemy has been enticing people to treat the planet, to exploit the planet in greed. Dollar signs in our eyes. And that's why Jesus came. The New Testament tells us that Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. Jesus came to undermine the undermining of the enemy. Jesus came to undo the destruction that the enemy is wreaking on the world. That's what his death and resurrection was all about. Jesus standing in the path of an onslaught of evil, inviting the enemy to do its very worst to Jesus, ultimately killing him in the end. And yet when Jesus rose from the dead, he was rising up victorious over evil. He had broken the back of evil. He had broken the power of evil in the world so that no longer did evil have to get the last word on what happens in our world. In fact, when Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, he won the decisive battle in the war between God and the enemy, between good 
and evil. He guaranteed that the trajectory of the universe is now tilted towards love. And that love would win in the end. And see, here's the problem. He won the decisive battle, but the war is not over. There's still fighting to do. And the enemy's ticked. And he knows he's lost. And so the only thing he can do is take down and take out as many of God's people as can be as humanly possible. The reason the kingdom emerges in the context of struggle and suffering and pain and hardship is that we're living on a cosmic battlefield, trenched in on the front lines, fighting the forces of darkness. And the way we fight is by loving God, loving people, and being Jesus to a world in pain. That's how we fight the battle. And here we are dug in, in the trenches, on the front line, fighting the battle against darkness, waiting for the cavalry to come. When Jesus returns, he'll put the war to an end. And love will win and the world will be recreated and heaven and earth will become the same place and God will dwell among his people and an era of shalom will begin on earth. But in the meantime, the kingdom is a war. And what Jesus wants to know in this last little bit of this talk that he has with his disciples, what he wants to know is that in the war, whose side are you on? Who are you fighting for? He says, he goes on uh, in verse 37, he says, anyone, he's picking up on the example he used before about families. He says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus says, this is what I want to know. As illustrated by this example, in the moment where because of your faith in me, your family is being divided and conflict is brewing and it's getting really tough to be faithful in following me because of the pressure being put on by your family, who are you going to choose in that moment to follow? Are you going to choose to please your family or are you going to choose to please me? Are you going to choose to be faithful to your family and compromise your relationship with me or are you going to choose to be faithful to me and compromise your relationship with your family. Because however you choose in that, mo- in that moment, if the chips were down and you had to choose one or the other, Christ or your family, whatever you would choose in that moment ultimately illustrates whose side you're ultimately on. Because Jesus says for the one who would choose their family, all you've illustrated is that you love your family more than you love Christ. And says, Christ says that's just somebody who isn't yet fully devoted to fighting for my side. He says, if anyone wants to follow me, they have to take up their cross and follow me. The, he's, the cross is the symbol of Roman crucifixion which was a form of execution that was reserved for basically runaway slaves, but more importantly, for failed revolutionaries, people who were trying to overthrow the evil and the oppression of the system, who were going to be martyred for the cause. And a Roman philosopher and senator named Plutarch says, every convicted criminal carries their own cross 
to the site of their crucifixion. And Jesus says, that's the way that it is if you want to follow me, if you want to fight on my side in the war of pushing back the darkness and reclaiming this world for the light by loving God, loving people, and being Jesus to a world in pain. If you want to be on my side, pick up a cross and start to follow. The lifestyle of the person who would follow Christ and live for the mission, do battle against the enemy, the lifestyle is someone who's ready to put the cho- their head on the chopping block with their family. Someone who's willing to put their neck in the noose for their boss, in front of their boss. Someone who's willing to face the firing squad of culture who's taking pot shots because you're living differently than you're supposed to. Because you're living faithfully to Christ. In fact, he summarizes what he means in the next verse. He says, whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. What he means is whatever, whoever finds their life. He says, if you find your life, your true life, the satisfying life, the life that you want, the life that ultimately fills, that ultimately fills you, if you find that life in something other than me, you will eventually lose it. Another way to translate it actually is if you find yourself. I like that because we talk about finding ourselves. I'm going to go and find myself. And what do we mean by that? I'm going to discover the person that I am, that I want to be. I'm going to go and discover what it is that I want to live for, what matters to me, the kind of life that I'm going to live. And Jesus says, if you go and find yourself in something other than me, in comfort and fun and romance and relationships and sex and popularity and success and education and vocation and you know, career or marriage and family or kids or whatever it is, you find yourself living for something other than me, in the end, you're going to lose yourself. You find your life, you locate your life in something other than me, ultimately you're gonna lose your life. What he means is you're gonna find out in the end that you had missed it all along that you had lost out on the opportunity to experience real life. Because conversely, he says, whoever's willing to lose their life, whoever's willing to put their head on the chopping block with their family, whoever's willing to put their neck in the noose with their boss, whoever's willing to stand in front of the firing squad of culture and your neighbors for being different than everybody else, whoever's willing to lose their life, who's ever willing to not live for comfort and romance, relationships and sex and popularity and success and education and vocation and all marriage and family and kids and all the things I named before, whoever's willing to lose out on that stuff for the sake of Christ will find their life in the end. They will find themselves living the awesomest imaginable life that you could ever live on this earth. They'll find themselves living the life that Jesus calls abundant, the life that overflows. You'll find yourself living the life that Jesus calls blessed, the life you're lucky to live, the life that ultimately makes you happy and fulfilled, the life that Jesus always wanted for you. There is no life that you could live that compares to the life of loving God and loving people and being Jesus to a world in pain. No life that you could possibly live that compares. So Jesus says, who's going to choose that life? And it doesn't even mean, by the way, it doesn't even mean 
that you're going off and doing something huge, that you're taking a vow of chastity or you're leaving your family and your job and you're gonna travel the world. It doesn't mean you're going to do something huge. In fact, look at how he closes this whole section. He says this, he says, whoever welcomes you welcomes me. He's talking about uh, welcoming people into their home, offering hospitality. He says, whoever welcomes you welcomes me and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. And whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who's my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. Jesus is going back to the beginning of his talk with the disciples about when he was saying to them that you're gonna go around and you're gonna be dependent on the generosity and hospitality of people inviting you into their home, excuse me, and providing for you everything that you need to live out the mission that I've called you to live. He says you're gonna be dependent on that kind of hospitality. And he says, now I want you to think about those hosts. He says, anyone who has a house... <laughs> who's willing to extend that kind of hospitality and generosity to a prophet of God, just because they are a prophet, just because they want to support the prophet in their mission of preaching the message that God has put on their heart, if anyone invites them and welcomes them into their home to be supportive of the mission that that prophet is on, Jesus says that person, though not a prophet themselves, will gain a prophet's reward. You don't have to be a prophet. You don't have to do prophet-sized things. You don't have to be a world-renowned uh, evangelist for the, for the kingdom of God. You don't have to make uh, a discernible difference in the world. You don't have to change the world for Jesus' sake. You don't have to be a prophet to gain a prophet's reward. You just have to be a participant in what God is doing. You just have to be a participant in the mission. If you support the prophet in the prophet doing what the prophet does, then Jesus says, guess what? You qualify for a prophet's reward because you've been a part of the prophecy. I have this talk with the video team all the time in various ways. The, the guys and girls who get together and who make these sermons possible, make it possible for me to be preaching in three locations even though I can only be one, at one place at a time. And I say to them all the time in various ways, I say, listen, it takes five people to preach at Southridge this weekend. One person to do the study and to write the manuscript and then it takes camera people and switcher people and computer people and producer people. It takes a whole team of people. We preach these sermons together. What I believe that Jesus is saying is that every one of those folks who volunteers for the video team, every one of those folks who sacrifices to show up and to do the work of putting these uh, messages on video receives a preacher's reward. They may never stand where I stand. They may never do what I do. They may never say to the community the things that I say to the community, but they stand beside me in the reward they receive from God because 
They have participated in what God is doing through the preaching of the word at Southridge, and therefore they receive a preacher's reward. Jesus says, you know how little a thing it takes to get a reward in the kingdom? Try giving a cup of cold water to the least significant disciple who's following me, and you will not fail to lose, or you will not lose out on your reward. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be spectacular. It doesn't have to be amazing. It doesn't have to be world changing. It just has to be motivated by wanting to see God's healing love flood the world. And I see people living it all the time. I see people living it on Sunday mornings. Pointing out parking spots and opening doors and making coffee and handing out programs and shaking hands and showing people where to sit. Leading uh, from the stage worship and and leading services and so on, loving our kids down the hall as we sit here in the service. (coughs) Excuse me. People who are, got out of bed this morning so that this building could radiate the healing love of God to everyone who wanders through the doors. And not one will miss out on their reward. I see it in those who gather together in homes during the week. Life group leaders and life group members who covenant together to walk through life and carry each other's burdens and journey together towards a life of holiness and wholeness where we love God, love each other, and, f- and be Jesus to a world in pain. And not one of them will miss out on the reward of having carried each other through the journey of struggle and hardship and pain. I see it in every volunteer who, who volunteers at an anchor cause, who's made the space in their life to befriend somebody that society has shoved off to the side and forgotten. In every person who sponsors a child that they'll probably never meet who lives in another part of the world. Not one will miss out on the reward. I see it in the lives of people whose vocation becomes their mission. I was in a seminar with a doctor this week whose passion is to bring healing to people's bodies, but who is equally open to the, with the faith that has healed his soul. It's a man who's being Jesus to a world in pain. I see it in, in stay-at-home moms and dads who get out of bed in the morning to pour the love of Jesus into the soul of their child and into the souls of their children's friends and into the souls of the parents of their children's friends and into the souls of everybody they stand beside at the bus stop and at the playground and in the arena. I see it in the lives of those teachers who open the classroom every morning and pray over those empty chairs and pray that God would fill them with the love of Christ so that they can fill these children with the love of Christ that they so desperately need. I see it in business people who are being creative and entrepreneurial in the way they're building social consciousness into how they do business. Not just being aware of fair wages and sustainable materials and all of that, but... but um, creating awareness for social causes and rolling the profits and proceeds into bringing the healing love of Jesus to bear on a world in pain. I see it. And not one is gonna miss out on their reward. Not that we're doing it for the reward, mind you. You don't eat well and exercise to get a reward. The health and the fitness is the reward. 
You don't practice the piano because your mom will reward you with $2. You practice the piano because the music is the reward. You don't take your spouse on a date because you want something at the end. You take your spouse on a date because the marriage is the reward. You don't follow Christ. You don't love God and love people and be Jesus to a world in pain for what you can get out of it, for a reward in the end. The life is the reward. It is the most amazing, awesomest, incredible, most significant, powerful life that you could ever possibly hope to imagine to live and you get to experience even when it's hard and even when it hurts you get to experience the amazing blessed abundant life of being Jesus to a world in pain for the entire duration of your life and then after it's done you get to stand before God and hear him say well done my good and faithful servant for serving me in the small and faithful ways that you never tired of Thank you for digging in and fighting on the front lines to push back the darkness and to fill the world with the light of the healing love that I wanted to pour on my creation. Thank you. That's what Jesus is inviting us into. A life that is hard, in which there is struggle and suffering and pain but a life in which we remember that everything worth it is hard. And this life that is hard will all be worth it in the end. Let's pray together as a community. Close your eyes right now. Just close your eyes. I know there are some of you here this morning for whom this whole conversation has just gone right over your head. It's just, it's just not where you are in life. We talked in the beginning about people who don't just look, but who see the world for what it is, who don't just see, but who notice people's stories, who don't just notice, but who care about what's going on in people's lives, and who don't just care, but who do something. And there's, there are folks sitting in all of our locations this morning who just aren't yet in a place where they're ready to notice or care or do something. Heavenly Father, would you break our hearts with your compassion? Would you give us your eyes to see the world that we might see a world in pain, the same world that you saw, people harassed and helpless? Would you teach us to care? And would you light a fire under us to do something. Some of you are here this morning and you're here and you want, you want to do it and you just don't know what to do. You just don't know what it is that God is calling you to. You just don't know what that mission looks like for your life. Heavenly Father, for those who are ready and willing and able and who are eager to get in the game of being Jesus to a world in pain, would you begin to show them opportunities? Would you, God, help us set aside this compulsive desire we have to find the one big thing that you've called us to and would you open our eyes to all the little cups of cold water that you're inviting us to hand out every single day. There's some here this morning who are terrified. Terrified because you won't know what to say, you think, or terrified 
um, because you, you're not ready to make the sacrifices. You're not ready to choose a life of mission ahead of everything else. You're not ready for the opposition or the hostility or the suffering or the pain. If that's you this morning, Heavenly Father, I just, I pray that you would fill us with courage and hope and strength that we might respond to the mission that you've called us to, trusting you to give us everything we need. Would you give us, all of us, God, a vision of the life that you're calling us to, of loving God and loving you and being Jesus to a world in pain. Would you help us see and know deep in our spirit and right down to our bones just how worth it it is in the end. And let us live for the reward of the life you're offering us. That your name would be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.